the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi there, and welcome again to Planted. Today, I'm really happy to have Harry Rose from Rosette visiting us. Harry is the founder and CEO of Rosette, which is an amazing tincture company. They do tinctures for both humans and pets. Um, and we've I've been working with the company and their products for some quite some time, so I'm really excited to have Harry on. Welcome, Harry. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been really excited to have you on the show so we can geek out together. <laughs> Exactly. So That's for, what I, do uh, I love that. So first off, um, before we get into that, will you will you tell our listeners about how you got into cannabis? Well, uh, I got into cannabis a long time ago when I was really young. Um, I was exposed to it through a family member at a very early age, and. Um, it was really through that experience that I fell in love with the plant. I always enjoyed nature. I always enjoyed gardening with my mom at a very young age. We had a pretty beefy vegetable garden at our family house. And I felt like I had somewhat of a green thumb at an early age. And so by the time I hit uh, 14, I was definitely very into um all the aspects of what cannabis is and can do. I couldn't get my hands on enough material to read about it. There wasn't much back then really to read, but whatever there was, I did read from encyclopedias to uh, Ed Rosenthal, original books and high times and mountain girl books and things like that. Some books from India. And that really propelled, you know, me to want to cultivate, cannabis for myself, um, I was always kind of worried about the source. Uh, a number of people kind of scared me about that from the paraquat and stays. And so I decided to uh, take seeds from the cannabis that I had been using because back then all the cannabis had seeds in it and started to grow it. And I started to grow it at my family house in my bedroom as a kid. And... Um, it just bloomed from there. I got so interested in it. Um, we ended up going on a family trip to Europe, and I demanded that we go to Amsterdam so that I could go and get seeds, and I did when I was uh, about 15. And that was right around the time when things were really starting to get more organized over there. And um, so... I had met a bunch of people in Amsterdam and gotten a bunch of seeds and brought them back and started growing them, you know, in the woods, sort of an illegal uh, uh, gorilla grow. This was in upstate New York, and it's still not okay to grow, you know, uh, cannabis there. So um, I started growing cannabis in New York in my backyard and my parents' house and things like that, wherever I could get away with it. And I just spent more and more time with the plant, learning about it, and again, trying to get my hands on anything I could to read about it. And um, I started growing uh, more and more and better and better and getting more and more advanced techniques from other people that cultivate other things, such as roses and African violets and things like that. People were giving me pointers to try to apply to cannabis. 
And so I got better and better at it. And then I was introduced to hashish from the Middle East, and I got very interested in that and the production of that. So, again, the same, you know, concept. I got very into that. I read everything I could get my hands on. And back then, there was no equipment to buy. You know, it was very um, illegal and scary to do things. And so uh, we had to do things like buy um, silkscreen from T-shirt uh, printing places and stretch our own screens. And that's really how I started making dry sift hashish and figuring out all the different techniques that I could there. And so throughout my whole youth, into my 20s, really, I was very into cannabis, infatuated with it, and growing it, and making things with it, and making my own edibles. And it was pretty advanced back then, because there really wasn't any technology. It's it's nothing like it is now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, ultimately... Um, for a career, I ended up becoming a master electrician in the entertainment industry. It's a long story, but my dad is a mechanical engineer. He got me into engineering at a very early age, and I liked um, the electrical engineering portion. So long and short of it is, you know, I really liked concerts. I wanted to get involved in that. I became a master electrician and a lighting designer, and I traveled the world. I worked for uh, a lot of bands, and then I transitioned into doing corporates where I did all the product launches with Apple, with Steve Jobs, and all the original Google launches, and Oracle, and Microsoft, you know, the original uh, Windows launches, and Xbox, and everything, you know, all the stuff that came out of the original technology booms, the iPhone, the iMac, the MacBook, and you know, all the various Oracle products and so on. I did all of those launches and traveled the world and worked really hard and had a great time. But after doing it for a couple dozen years and working 100 hours a week and not eating properly and going traveling constantly, I got very sick with an autoimmune disease that must have been building for years, but I didn't notice it because I was too busy. And finally, it stopped me in my tracks. I was very sick. And um, I was already in California at that point, living full-time in the San Francisco Bay Area and sharing time between there and Humboldt County, where my wife and I had decided to buy a property and learn how to live off-grid and do some farming anyway. I got very sick, and we ended up moving to Humboldt full-time to try to heal myself because there really, to this day, is no conventional treatment that actually works for autoimmune disease. They just give you antibiotics and steroids and things like that that really make it worse, as I found out. And so being in Humboldt County, you know, I, I learned a lot. I was able to cultivate cannabis to at least relieve symptoms. And that's really when my whole journey uh, really refining some of the techniques that I had learned as a kid and some of the knowledge that I gained from doctors and scientists that were helping me save my life. And um, that's really where my journey began. You know, that's really the base, I would say, of where Rosette and all the tinctures and all the medical knowledge that I have comes from. Um, 
it's 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 a very long-winded story that's a very condensed version of it but the reality is when i got sick and i moved up north i had to really concentrate on taking care of myself and where i lived in humboldt county is in you know it's it, they call it a subdivision most people think of sort of suburbia but a subdivision in humboldt is um in our case it's it's almost 80 40 acre parcels that are very rural and it's off grid completely and um, in my subdivision my neighbor was Lawrence Ringo and so I, I met him as a neighbor and he was friendly as everybody is in the hills and we all help each other develop the land and deal with water management and you know freight and just whatever anybody needs but we weren't very close at first um, I had uh, I had been on a lot of medication and it definitely disorients you and uh, our subdivision has a dirt road. They were doing maintenance on it and I had a bad wreck in my truck and that's when Ringo and I really hit it off and became close. Um, he discovered me. I had flipped my truck. He discovered me and pulled me off of a hillside basically and uh, we immediately hit it off and started hanging out and uh, sharing stories and plants and cultivation techniques and so on. So that's really how I met Ringo and befriended him and, and started um, participating more in, in his adventures. And that was long before, you know, his whole CBD uh, tenure started. Um, yeah, because... Right around that same and he was really pivotal with a lot of, of the work with CBD, correct? Uh, he was, and it, it's a little bit sad to me because he died right when it was getting good and things were starting to finally take off. And now it's a little bit annoying because I see a lot of people trying to take credit for it and thinking that it happened a whole different way. But the reality is, you know, we know that, that Ringo started the modern-day CBD craze. Obviously, he didn't discover it or invent it. You know, the same person that discovered THC in Israel discovered, discovered CBD much later. People knew it was there, but nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody had great genetics for it. And so Ringo really is the godfather of modern-day CBD. He's really responsible for the hemp craze that happened inadvertently. Um, and really how it happened is right around the time that I, I was very sick, um, there was a woman that started, um, trying to come up with the quantification for doing cannabinoid testing. Uh, she came from the EPA, had a lot of biological, uh, backgrounds and chemistry and so on. She was interested in cannabis and wanted to start proper testing for the medical in California. And Ringo had met her through a couple of friends. And his idea was to go through his seed collection and find the highest THC plants. Because at the time, it was all about recreational cannabis, even though there was medical. Medical really, unfortunately, was a cover for a lot of people doing illegal black market work. Right. They rode the coattails of us people that actually were sick and needed it. But that's the truth of it. And so... He wanted to find the highest THC material he could and cut to the chase. Nobody had testing, so he figured he could do this amazing project 
and come out with amazing flour that nobody would ever be able to replicate because he has testing and nobody else did. What ended up happening was he discovered that at least half of his seeds were extremely high in CBD. And he didn't know what that was or what that meant, but the woman that we were working with that was testing this material, again, was a biologist, had some knowledge and said, you're sitting on something special here. We need to develop this and see what it can do. This has a lot of medical relevance, and um, nobody really knows about this. This could be huge. And so then he really partnered up even tighter with, with this woman that was operating a lab before labs were legal and built a clandestine grow where they ended up doing about around 40,000 tests, I think he told me, uh, popping seeds and breeding and going back and forth for several months. Um, she came in and did testing, and they ended up narrowing it down to find the handful of strains that really had what we considered high CBD. At that moment in time, you know, people that were discovering CBD strains were using very crude test methods, and they were a fraction of a percent. Something that was 2% was, oh, my God, this is CBD rich. This is huge, you know. <laughs> and we had just discovered strains that were 15 18% CBD. Nobody ever saw anything like that before. And um, that's how the original Sour Tsunami was narrowed down, which is the, which is the first stabilized strain that was made into seeds that would put out a high CBD plant every single time and tended to be uh, three parts CBD to one part THC. From there, he took a lot of his other strains and ended up breeding a lot of the THC out. And we came up with a one-to-one and we came up with a 20 to one that ended up being uh, 21%, you know, 20 parts CBD, 1% THC or close to it. These were the first that anybody had ever seen and nobody was thinking ratios back then. Um, the only person involved in this kind of thing at that moment, moving forward a little bit was GW pharmaceuticals. And they had came, come up with the idea to have equal portions, one-to-one one at that point. Um, and they had uh, this guy named Skunk Man, who's famous for creating some of the original skunk flower in the old days. They hired him. They gave him a, a greenhouse in Holland, and he went for it. And he ended up finding out that he could come up with some CBD rich plants but they only had one or two percent maybe a few percent so what they had to do because they didn't have strains like we did is they literally burned the thc off of the material and were left with high cbd and so that's what their technique is that they ended up patenting to create the cbd that they needed to to make the original you know um uh inhalants this, the bronchial inhalers that they made. Mm -hmm. Whereas we actually created strains that was 10% CBD, 10% THC, you know, and so on with the three to one and the one to one. 
nobody could come up with these high CBD ratios and we were doing it all day. So the reality is I had taken that original three to one. I was already, uh, if I back up a bit, um, I had tried all kinds of treatments from the Western world, steroids and antibiotics and you name it, um, to try to help me. And admittedly, they, they really had nothing for me at that point. And so the doctors had suggested I try some alternative therapies, for which I did, a couple out of New Zealand, uh, Europe, and they almost killed me because it turns out they were actually poison, and I didn't realize it until I almost bit it. But at that point, I was really frustrated, and I thought I was destined to just be sick forever, to be honest with you. And I had gotten um, introduced to a guy named Dr. Simpson that people now know as Rick Simpson. Uh, And he had told me that cannabis oil can probably put me into remission or cure me. And I couldn't believe it because I'd been smoking cannabis for a long time at that point. I didn't understand how something could be that different that it would actually help me. So he gave me phone number of a young woman who lived in Kansas and she had what I had and she had been in hospice like I was and now then she was back at work and so he put me into contact with her to convince me to try this so I did I called her up it turns out that you know she was very sick she was in Kansas so access was very difficult her boyfriend ran around all over the all over the state buying eights you know, 3.5 grams of uh, Mexican flour, terrible stuff. And what she had figured out was to take that and pack it, you know, round after round in a old school vaporizer. That was that was Chandra? More than a heating element. What's that? Was that Chandra? The Chandra? Per- oh, there was a woman named. I remember when I first started working in cannabis, uh, watching something about a. I, I think she may have had something with her digestive system, though. Um, and her name was Chandra, yeah. and, and she was in the, the same area. And um, she was doing YouTube videos on making oil at home using a basic vaporize, vaporizing unit and using and doing something with condensation to be able to make oils for herself. And that got her out of bed because she yeah. was walking with a walker. It's probably the very same woman. I mean, she's much younger than me. I don't know. How, I don't know. It, this was a long time ago, so I'd have to I'd have to look up that name. But it sounds familiar. She's from Kansas. I can't imagine it's, the, it's not the same person. But basically, it was yeah, it was an old school DC vaporizer that has a heat plate and a globe on top. Yeah. And she and she would put it in there and let it vaporize, and then you let the vapor settle and it creates you know it leaves an oil residue because vapor is just oil vaporized Mm -hmm. literally Mm -hmm. so then she scraped it out and she took it and after three months she felt a lot better ended up going back to work and she wasn't on hospice anymore and yeah she had an what she had is an autoimmune digestive disease just like me she had uh a colitis Severe yeah. ulcerative colitis. I think it's the same person. She ended up having issues later on uh, with uh, CPS and her children because of, you know, 
using cannabis. And that was actually what got her out of bed was able to gave her the ability to be able yep. to parent. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, she was on hospice just like I was. Wow. It was a crazy time. She was a lot younger. I mean, this is 20 years ago now. Yeah. Or so yeah, we spent a lot of time on the phone, on the phone crying together. It was, it was pretty sweet, you know, and she gave me the inspiration you know, I was in Humboldt. I said, if you can do this with Mexican flour in Kansas using a vaporizer, I'm in Humboldt. I grow flour. I can do this. And so that's really, that was her. She was, she was the final throw. She's the one that really inspired me to try it. And so uh, after talking to, to Mr. Simpson a little bit longer, um, he, was, he was already making oil in the crude way with naphtha that he originally recommended and I told him that that's you know illegal in California we can't obtain it and so then we both concluded that I could use grain alcohol and it would it would be good enough and so I sent somebody to Oregon got me a few gallons of ethanol I took a pound of my my best pound that I had grown of chem dog back then made oil out of it and I started taking it and after about a month um, I started feeling a lot better but it still was having a lot of issues because I was very sick and they didn't diagnose me for about eight years. And so by the time they did diagnose me, my intestines were twice the diameter they were supposed to be, but the inside was like a quarter of the diameter it was supposed to be because the inflammation, none of the doctors could understand how I was alive, how I didn't have to have operations. Maybe the cannabis I was smoking was suppressing it enough to, to, to let me live through that portion but anyway I still wasn't 100% and you know uh, Dr. Simpson said you know you got to give it at least three months and I said okay and that was after the first month is when Ringo first stabilized the sour tsunami and he had two big plants that were sea plants and I asked him if I could make oil out of it and he said yes and so I did and so the original sour tsunami plants are what I took for the next two months. And after that second month, which was my third month on what we now call RSO, I woke up one morning and I had completely forgot that I was sick, which, you know, when you have bowel disease, I mean, you feel like your intestines are drooping, you're in pain, you have trouble going to the bathroom, there's blood, there's like, there's just a mess. And so to forget is unbelievable. Yeah. And it was, it was about a half a day. And then I broke down and my wife is like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I think that I, I think I'm better. You know, I think something happened. And so I still couldn't believe it. So I was still eating a gram a day of the sour tsunami and I was still making more. And I did that for a year and a year after I felt better. And I was just so scared. I never wanted to be sick again. I never wanted to get poked and prodded and x-rayed and, and scoped and all this stuff again. But after a year, my body pretty much told me that I could taper down and get onto maintenance doses. And that's basically where I'm at to this day. I haven't had a flare-up. Um, you know, permanent damage is permanent damage. And, you know, I have some touches of things from time to time when I'm overly stressed. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't have. I, I have never had a flare-up since. How for and, a maintenance dose? How much do you use every day? Um. Well, 
out of that whole experience, what I ended up formulating is what is now called balance. And it won the Emerald Cup one year, and a lot of people like it. It's, it's definitely a, a Swiss Army knife. And so originally, when I was doing the oil, you know, I was doing 800, 900 milligrams of oil every day. When I tapered down, um, I tapered down, I was still taking oil. I tapered down to about 200 milligrams a day. Then I started playing and, and doing a lot more with the acidic forms. And I realized that I don't need as much of the activated, the neutral forms of these compounds. If I take the acidic forms and the acidic forms are in, intoxicating. And so that's when I realized I could just make a balanced formula, which is where it comes from, of THC, CBD, CBDA, and THCA, along with all the subcannabinoids and terpenoids and flavonoids that come with it. And so I went from taking 800 to 900 milligrams a day, maintenance down to 200 milligrams a day, where and now I take about 60 milligrams a day of balance, which is all four compounds. So 50 milligrams spread out throughout those four main compounds with all the various uh, sub uh, compounds that come with it. So that's where I'm at today. That's where I feel comfortable at. Do I need to take 60 milligrams a day? I'm not sure, but I can tell you that I never want to go back to where I was. Yeah. And, you know, and that's basically why I do what I do. I, I think that it's a, it's a good level for me. It keeps pain managed, you know, any pain killers that I would need for anything off the menu. And um, there's just a lot of benefits for me for it. Uh, I believe it helps my immune system overall. And now there's been a number of studies that have come out that say that people with autoimmune disease, the cannabinoids actually bolster somebody with autoimmune diseases immune system that's not necessarily the effect that you would get if you don't have autoimmune disease and they're still studying that and working on that but somebody like me definitively has been scientifically proven to make my immune system function in a way that keeps me healthy yeah, and when you're dealing with autoimmune issues i i have autoimmune issues myself i've got hashimoto's and I got into cannabis mm -hmm. because I had stage three colon cancer. Um, and the things that they recommend for autoimmune diseases, the, the pharmaceuticals are just, they're so incredibly dangerous. They have so many bad side effects if they work at all. It, it just seems like we should be having more conversations about how cannabis can really be helpful for people with autoimmune diseases and also looking at how, you know, mother's milk contains anandamide. And if you weren't breastfed, how does that impact your autoimmune system as you get older too? You know, because were you breastfed? I was not. I was not either. And if you, if you go around and ask people that got autoimmune disease, honestly, because it can happen other ways, if you get it, you know, basically from birth, your disposition for it, you will find that most people, if not everybody I've ever asked, has not been breastfed that has autoimmune disease. It's kind of wild. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is really. And there's you know, a lot in mother's milk. Yeah, there's so much Very goodness special. there. Well, you know, and, and I, when I was just thinking about your balance formula too, and I was I was doing a little bit of reading before we got together, um, and I had noticed that you were talking about some connection between uh, when you were talking about MCT oil base about omega threes in cannabis. You want to talk about that a little bit for us? Well, omega threes and any antioxidant, especially for people like us that have autoimmune disease, is a very beneficial thing. Autoimmune disease, once it's triggered, as you know, the slightest thing happens, your body just starts attacking it and doesn't know when to stop. And what antioxidants does for somebody like us is they, it runs around and kills free radicals very well. And that's one of the main things, one of the main benefits for people with autoimmune disease is it's running around killing off these free radicals, which basically, you know, for lack of a better term, it, it really raises hell in your body and could start diseases, could start infections, could start uh, syndromes. So if you're naturally taking those off the plate, you're automatically suppressing that autoimmune reaction that tends to get overreactive when these things start to happen. On top of that, they now know through research, mainly out of Israel, that antioxidants actually make cannabinoid absorption more effective. It actually makes it more bioavailable. And so... A lot of people don't realize that the cannabinoids that they ingest, they take 100 milligrams, but only a small amount of that actually becomes available and active and working in your system, and you end up wasting a lot of that. Um, if we had 100% bioavailability available to us, everybody's doses would be much smaller. Yeah. And so that's, that's definitely something that we're working on is we're actually working with a lab that's able to take our full-spectrum oil and turn it into something that will become, you know, in the 80%, 90% bioavailable range, which means that, you know, you're taking 1 to 2 milligrams and getting the effect of 10 to 15 milligrams and so on, and that, you know, really compounds exponentially. But the reason we chose MCT oil was as an oil, it's extremely stable. It doesn't go rancid very easily. It's very hard to make it go bad. It's very hard, if not impossible, to make it mold. And a lot of people have chosen olive oil, and there's a lot of different theories about using olive oil, um, and there's compounds in olive oil that people are boasting. The problem is olive oil can and has go, gone rancid, and it will also start growing some of these um, mycotoxins that could be potentially in raw plant material that some people infuse directly into the olive oil. Uh, there was a company that shall remain nameless that actually killed a couple people by that effect because they used olive oil and it preserved the mycotoxin and actually grew out, killed somebody that was positioned for it. They did the study out of Stanford to find out why and it tracked back to the cannabis. And that was a terrible day for us in, in cannabis medicine because we were terrified they were going to shut the whole 215 system down. But luckily they didn't. But 
so that was one the preservation of it was one reason the molecule size is extremely small if you notice they use mct oil a lot in topicals because of the penetration and um it's very compatible with the molecule sizes of the cannabinoids the terpenoids the flavonoids the enzymes and because of that the way we extract and the way we filter we're able to infuse that mct oil and it does not settle ever if you notice our tinctures unlike most of the tinctures on the market that are made in a way that preserves full spectrum you don't have to shake it Mm -hmm. and it doesn't settle Mm -hmm. and so those are some of the big factors that we chose that oil over. And I, I just kind of, I want to go back to when we were talking about, you know, what can possibly happen with olive oil. Um, one of the things that I always talk about in my classes is the fact that nobody's ever died of cannabis. When there have been cannabis-related deaths due to ingestion, it, it has been about impurities or... You know, like we've had people with compromised immune systems that have ingested cannabis that's had like, you know, mold, mildew or fungus because with a compromised immune system, a yeast infection can kill you. And so it's one of the good things that happened. There's a lot of things with legalization in California that need to be righted, of course. It definitely is far from Mm -hmm. perfect. But one of the good things that happened was that testing was required so that people know when they go into a dispensary everything that they have access to is mold mildew fungus heavy metal free and it's it's just incredibly important for people to understand and then that's like with with cannabis becoming so expensive and especially with like some of my older um, patients that are ill and on fixed incomes they'll say you know well I'm going to go back to my guy and because this is just too expensive at a dispensary level. And mm-hmm. I always tell them, you know, I, I totally understand why, but you need to know your farmer and know their practices. You do. You do. I, and and, and I, I hate to shoot holes through this, but, you know, I, I am a farmer. Uh, we, we're completely vertical. I've been growing for a long time. I've been extracting for a long time, and I've been in the business a long time. And we, I am... And, and people will, will, you know, definitely put their nose up at me about this. But I, I actually want more testing. There's a few things that I'm really petitioning for to get on the list. There's a few uh, mycotoxin initiators and a few pathogen initiators that are not on there that other states actually test for that I think we need to get on. Oh, I you agree know, with they you. Might see a, they might see a marker, but they don't know what it is. And so... But it, you're right, it is really good. And, and the other thing is, as a farmer, I can tell you that you can grow moldy flour and it will pass testing. And so all I can say is it is good to know your farmer. and It's not necessarily even the farmer's fault. Sometimes this thing ends up in the water, it ends up in the air, it ends up in the ground, and it was never there before. And you could end up with flour that to somebody with a compromised immune system could potentially kill them or get them very sick and have no idea whatsoever. The farmer did everything right and the flowers looked beautiful and they were extracted properly. And um, that's that, that brings me to another point. There's a lot of reasons why we use the cryoethanol extraction in our products. Uh, the main reason is it's been proven that ethanol extracts, if done properly, are the most medicinally beneficial currently. 
and that we have proof of their medicinal values. If you really research and see actual cannabis products, not synthetic, but all the stuff that the Israelis did and the Brits and a lot of other people, it was all ethanolic extraction, period. There's no exceptions. But the beauty of it is anything over 91 proof, 91% alcohol will kill any fungi, any bacteria. It's dead. It's gone. Yeah. And unless you do that, right, with CO2, solventless, other types of extractions, you aren't necessarily killing it. Whereas 91% dead, no matter what. Wow. Um, when I, when then, I started, we were still seeing butane extractions, and you'd you know, open up that jar of concentrate, and it would just, that smell would just mm-hmm. hit you. <laughs> they're still it's still out there i mean they still allow 5,000 ppm or whatever so it's because of the sauces you couldn't you couldn't have sauce and diamonds without allowing some butane residual in there that's a whole other scary topic right but the you know the other beauty of using a solvent versus solventless and i very much believe in solventless is that um, it kills it, but then what we do is we do a submicronic filtration. And once you get below one micron, you're going to literally physically filter out any bacteria cells or, or fungi cells. Anything is gone when you're filtering it down to submicronic levels. And being a critically ill patient myself and working primarily with people with cancer, autoimmune disease, and very, you know, seriously compromised systems, I was terrified, you know. Um, when Ringo and I were helping people making oil uh, prior to me making tinctures, we had hundreds of people coming to us a month, and it was, we were scared, you know, because we didn't know enough about it, and we couldn't test for everything every time. So once I got into it and formalized it because it was getting out of control and there were thousands of patients now under our belt, we got very anal about nothing touches this material but glass and stainless. You know, we need to create a clean room. You know, before anybody was doing it, now it's normal. I mean, we were wearing hair bonnets and goggles and gloves, sterilizing and disinfecting, using autoclaves. That was unheard of in the 215 days, but we were doing it. I had a clandestine clean room in the middle of nowhere that shall remain nameless the location. (laughs) But I did have a real clean room with real pharmaceutical-grade equipment, and we did it um, the best way that we knew how to, to to try to provide good manufacturing practice so that it would be safe because testing back then, uh, you know, they tested for pesticides and a few residuals and potency, but it still was nowhere near what it was today. Right. And I felt personally responsible for this stuff getting out to people that I don't even know. And so we were very, very careful about how we did it, how we chose it, uh, how we chose the material. That's why I primarily grew everything, or we had farmers that I had known for 20 years grow exactly the way I needed to exactly the strains I needed to have grown. And, um, you know, it's blossomed into in, into what we're doing today. But to this day, every batch of oil that I make, I take extremely serious. I know that people that are dying, young kids and so on, are taking this medication. 
and I think about that, and I literally, I'm not a religious person whatsoever at all. But I do say a prayer for the patients over every batch that we've ever put out. You know, I, I try to, and it's kind of crazy. I'm not really this kind of person, but to a certain extent, I believe that I have to do this, you know, to make sure that it's double, triple safe. Yeah. So I really try to put my positive healing energy into every single batch that has ever gone out the door. I really pay attention to everything. I double check everything. You know, I, I really am kind of crazy about it when it comes to our tinctures to make sure that there's no way that anything could have slipped and it is going to be as safe as physically possible for every patient. Well, I and think that's you, the mentality of Rosette. Yeah, you. I think it's hard not, I think when you've gone through it, when you've been there, there's just this, this mindfulness that you know how impactful this is going to be on somebody because you've been there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a dark place when you're really sick. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. You and feel it, helpless. And when you get the help that you need, it's like, you know, it's the the value of it, the appreciation of it is like immeasurable. It changed my life. I mean, it didn't just change my life because I lived. It snapped something in me that made me realize that I have to do this. I have to help patients, and I have to educate people into you know i'm all for people inventing new things new techniques there's no way i would ever say that what we're doing is the end all forever i want to help advance it but i do want people to understand you know the seriousness seriousness of it what they're messing with and all the knowledge that i have for safety and to protect the end customer you know i try to pass that down to all of our employees but also anybody else that I come into contact with that's a producer, even personal producer, if they'll listen. Because the more it's out there, the less bad practice is going to happen. And there was a tremendous amount of tremendous amount of bad practices happening because there was no regulation. Yeah. As much as we all sort of, you know, again, put our nose up to regulation because it was easier without regulation – Regulation has forced everybody to become honest in certain ways. Regulation has uh, definitely, like you were saying, through testing, made the market much safer. And a lot, you know, if, if an elderly patient needs a product, they really should buy it from a store because they know it's as safe as possible. They know what they're getting. Yeah. And I think it's good, too, if you're if you're going to a dispensary that has conversations about dosage and how to create a safe container for experimentation. I know for myself, when I was going through chemo, that's when I first got my card. I had I would used cannabis like I, I started experimenting with it when I was younger, but I hadn't used it medicinally until I was sick. And, you know, we, back then, you go into a dispensary and people are a little afraid of you because you don't look so great. And they're also afraid to give you the wrong information because there wasn't a lot of culture around education at that point in time either. So when I started working in a dispensary, and I, I, I did it because after cancer, I didn't want to go back to the office and be anyone's boss. I wanted to go back to school and get my master's. So I took the job just thinking, oh, this will be temporary. It'll be fun. Not realizing, like, how much you're getting into, but really, like, educating people and helping them through, 
you know, their journey to, you know, a lot of them getting better was extraordinarily healing for me too. It was like the, the emotionally, mentally healing portion of my journey of getting better. How do, do you, have you experienced anything around that with, with your work? <laughs> I definitely feel that way. And, you know, helping patients is a part of my lifelong healing process. It was severely traumatic going through that. You know, I, I was told I was going to die and I didn't, you know, I was sort of getting used to that thought. And so when I didn't, I kind of feel like I'm living on borrowed time. I feel like I have to share this with everybody. I feel like I have to help the patients that are out of time and options. And really, unless somebody went through exactly what I went through and had the access and the knowledge and everything that I do, they really would have no way to figure this out or have access to it, which is why a lot of these patients traveled across the globe to come meet Lawrence and myself originally. Uh, they heard about it, but they couldn't do anything about it themselves, so they had to travel to learn about it, to get access to it, and so on. And I find it extremely gratifying. To this day, I take patient calls and emails as busy as I am doing the production and cultivation. I still find the time to do it. It's extremely important to me uh, to be directly in contact with the patients and get their feedback and also help them as much as I can. And I, you know, I, I also think it, that is partially what keeps me in remission, what keeps me healed and keeps me going definitely is knowing that we're helping people. And I know that it motivates my employees and everybody that works uh, for Rosette very much knows that what they're doing is powerful to people that are critically ill and they take it seriously, and I know they think about it, and it definitely has changed their life, and they're a lot more motivated in what they're doing now. You know, it's not just making a fun product for somebody or a high-quality product for somebody. It's making something that could literally change their life or save their life. And so it's, 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 it's bigger than I am to even conceptualize, you know. Yeah, Wait, it's funny that you say that because as as you were talking about that, I was just I was just thinking about that. It's like those of us who have connected to cannabis in that way, it is it is it is bigger than us. And and everybody that I've met who's been touched that way is is just driven to do the work in a way that they've never approached something before. <laughs> you know, it's it's just kind of like out of my way. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing this and. And I have a path and, uh, you know, doing it right and connecting with other people who have that same drive and heart around the work. And that's that's the stuff that really it just it inspires me even more in the work, meeting great people like you and other colleagues that we have in our field that are driven in the same way because of, you know, what they've gone through and what they've seen with impact, you know, in other people with their health. It's like that's. That's a that's the biggest thing, and I and I find like in the time of legalization, you know, as an educator, it's really interesting how we have to be really careful with our words as to what we say. And and I knew that there was a time that this would come into play, being that I I come from a family of medical professionals. Like my mother did the clinical trials on the chemo that I ended up taking years later. So, 
you always want to be oh, wow. yeah i did full fox five and she i asked her about it later on years later i was like you know how did you feel as you know mother and a researcher you did the the trials like at over 10 years earlier and you know did that was that helpful she's like no it's terrifying i knew everything that could go wrong you know but when we're we're educating people it's like nowadays we have to be so incredibly careful about how we use our words to describe how something can work because as you know we all metabolize it differently but now that we really have a, a lot more oversight um people are really really concerned about you know giving medical advice which i understand because sometimes when i read some of the medical cannabis boards and i see the things that people are suggesting to one another i'm like no don't do that <laughs> you know but for those of us who ha have a lot of experience and hours with human beings in cannabis it's like you know how do we how do we lead people to to make educated empowered decisions for themselves you know without you know making promises it's 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 an it's interesting true. dilemma it, it's it's always been a tap dance with wording if you're in public or you're putting it in writing because of the FDA and you always have to put the non-disclosures and so on. But the, the reality is it's such a joke. I mean, as you know, unless you did something now, it's possible to, to actually have a product that is so potent that you could potentially intentionally ingest enough to hurt yourself. But in general, you're going to, it's, it's self-regulating, as you know, it's so safe. I've tried it in so many different ways and also been influenced by patients who have done it so many different ways, good and bad. Yeah. Uh, but, but never with any kind of, you know, crazy fatal or permanent damage reaction that you would get out of uh, pharmaceuticals. Right. As you know, like autoimmune disease, you know, they don't have anything, so they throw antibiotics and steroids at it. And if that doesn't do anything, which it never does, you know, they just give you um, prednisone. Almost everybody, you know, gets prednisone at one point or another. Yeah. And if nothing like that works, Lealda or none of the corticosteroids, none of the various things, then what do they do? They put you on psychotropes. And they're like, well, maybe it's emotional. It's like, no, this is a physical reaction. Maybe it's emotional, physical reaction, but this is very physical. You can see this. This is tangible. But, you know, they're like, well, you know, 20% of the people who took this that had bowel disease got relief. <laughs> and so, well, you know, there might be a small percentage of people that actually did have that issue. But shouldn't you do the studies and the evaluations necessary to determine that and check for chemical imbalance prior to giving something that does have side effects, does create permanent damage, and you have to wean off of in order to even safely get off of this drug? And yeah. it's amazing how nonchalant doctors are about giving people something that intense. Yeah, you know? and then if they if they gave you antibiotics in the meantime they've they've killed all the good flora in your body. That was the first thing they did. Yeah. Sarah. So the first thing they did was they said, well, you might have parasites, so let's give you I forgot the name of it, it begins with an F. 
I blocked it out of my memory. <laughs> Don't blame you. Uh, intentionally. But it, they gave me this antiparasitic and a very powerful antibiotic. And they told me to take that for a week. And I was still really bad, if not worse. And so he said, we'll take it for another week. And then another week. So now I'm on it for three weeks. I finally read that you're only supposed to be on this antiparasitic for a few days. So now I'm on it for three weeks. And I said, doctor, this is not. So then, long story short, by the time I got my diagnosis and I told the diagnosing GI doctor about this, and this is another amazing thing, it took me. Um, a couple of years to get to the point where the regular uh, general practitioners were going to recommend a GI doctor for me. And then once I went to the GI doctor and I told them what I had taken, they said, oh, my God, you know, that can actually create a flare-up, you know, and that could have actually put you in this position and it might have been easier to handle prior to that. So... the whole the whole experience was really eye opening. You know, growing up, um, I always believed that doctors, you know, they were magicians. Basically, you go to the doctor and they fix you, and there's really nothing that they can't handle. And you know, your parents bring you up in the world. They don't want you to be frightened. So, you get sick, you're like, oh, no problem. We'll go to the doctor. They'll give you a shot, and you'll be fine. And you know, so then you get older. And you sort of have this belief ingrained in you and you get really sick and they tell you that they can't really help you. And it, it's, it's a shattering thing. You know, it, it deflates your whole life. It's, I mean, it's similar, frankly, that I don't really want to go into this. It's similar to what's going on in the United States right now. You know, you, yeah. you get brought up. The United States is the best country in the world. We're free and it's got all these things and all these safeguards. And then you find out that's not really true. And it's, it's just so disappointing. <laughs> it is. And so that's another motivator for what I do. Oh, absolutely. Know? Well, I mean, and that's the thing. You know, doctors are human beings. And with the way that, you know, the medical system has deteriorated, more than ever, we have to be our own advocates. I had a, I used to, a couple times a year, have a client in Boston that was, a, they were a, they, they did consulting. And a couple times a year, they would, have me on the phone, you know, asking questions while a client listened in. And one of the times they were asking about, uh, they had a big pharma client on the line, and they said, you know, how would you, how do you think that your patients would feel about a big pharma cannabis product on your shelf? And I said to him, I'm like, you have to understand that, you know, some people might be okay with that because they would think that there would be consistency and quality with that. But for a lot of the people I see, it is a it is a political act. It's not only relief; it's a political act to choose cannabis because, you know, big pharma has let them down and sometimes has almost killed them. And so they would be very leery of a product coming from a large pharmaceutical company. And the fact that we're looking at I I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm really not for synthetic cannabinoids. I think that it's extreme hubris to think that that's that's going to work. I really believe in, you know, full spectrum, the entourage effect. I took Marinol when I went through um, treatment because my mother was doing uh, cancer research in Dallas at Baylor and I didn't want to travel with my cannabis. So I took my Mar- I took Marinol with me that weekend because after three days of chemo, cannabis is what got me eating again. I lost my whole weekend with my mother. It just made me feel like crap. 
You know, it's it's just it's amazing how they you know there are just organizations that just don't seem to want to get it right. They just want to make money, and that's really alarming. And it's 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 what's making us sick. It's absolutely true. I mean, it's very in depth. Um, I'm a member of the International Cannabinoid Research Society. And so, I, I, again, I try to get my hands on everything I possibly can and study everything I can from the, from the molecule on up. And one of the things that I discovered through trial and error was all the documentation that you read that comes from the respectable sources that have actually done clinical studies, they use synthetic cannabinoids. And so the data, although there may be some relevance, is not really relevant. And what I mean is, just for starters, synthetic cannabinoids are not stable. And so, for instance, when you read up on THC, your typical definitions and documentation and what you would read on PubMed and some of the government research sites, and even from Israel, it's based on synthetic THC, CBD, CBC, and so on. And synthetic THCA will convert into THC just by sitting there, even in a refrigerator. It will also convert in a very short time into CBN, okay? And so all the documentation you read makes makes you think that, oh, my God, if I have this THC, it's going to turn into CBN in two weeks just sitting on my table. So there was a period of time when, and I think it's still this way a little bit. When CBN became hot, somebody figured out how to create it. The way they created it was using pressure and heavy metals. It's nasty. Ooh. And esters. And then they, they quote, unquote, remove that and end up with a single molecule CBN. So I knew I didn't want to do that. I'm not going to extract with toxins and give it to patients. And that's how most of it's made today, these patches and various things that you see out there that are CBN are made in a very nasty way. And I said, well, if documentation is right, which it never is, I should be able to just convert this stuff myself somehow. Being a farmer and somebody with a lot of access to oils, okay, let's go for it. I go out there and buy all kinds of ultraviolet spectrum lamps, heating equipment, pressure equipment, did hundreds of tests could not convert anything from THCA to THC, never mind CBN. I know how to convert it, but just these normal methods and thinking that it's going to be so easy based on the scientific data that's out there should have been a slam dunk. It wasn't. My last test I did, I, I took an ounce of flour that I grew. It was 105 degrees out on our farm. I hung it 20 feet off the ground in full sun in a plastic bag for a month. Okay? This is definitely going to convert it. It's going to ruin it. Maybe it'll burn some stuff off. But I got it. This is going to do it. Tested it. It was still primarily THCA. No CBN conversion. Barely any THC conversion. The weed turned brown. But that's it. Jeez. And so that's when I realized that there is no substitute I mean, I knew this before, but there is no substitute for the real thing. Mother Nature makes a similar-looking molecule, but it is definitely different. It is definitely tougher and more resilient and can handle a lot more. 
the full spectrum entourage effect. I mean, I feel like I practically invented that, you know, I didn't, but I, you know, it's a mantra of mine. You talked about it before a lot of people did. You you were having a lot of conversations about it. And you also had, you know, products that were precursors to a lot of the cannabinoids that a lot of, you were one of the first to do that too. I, I, I think you were one of the very first companies that I know of to have a CBDA product. Yeah, CBDA and THCA, we came out with first on the market. Um, we had been using it for years myself. And people kept telling me, you can't sell the acidic form. It doesn't do anything. You have to activate it. And I'm like, it is. Look at me. And so nobody believed me for the longest time. And then uh, there's a great, uh, beautiful human being, this woman, Eloise. Uh, she's a nurse out of the East Bay. And uh, she was working at this giant assisted living center over there that has a huge patient base. A lot of people with dementia, pain, uh, all of uh, huge variants. And we were giving her a bunch of different formulations to try out, a bunch of different com uh, compounds to try out. And so she requested, you know, after a while that we gave her the CBDA and the THCA. And they immediately started seeing amazing results in a lot of their various patients with various ailments. And so that's what really the motivation towards putting it in a product that went on a shelf uh, was. Everybody was very skeptical and really wondering what the hell we were doing, frankly. But she's the one that really proved it to the masses for us because we believed it. We knew it. We were giving it to all of our friends, family, and patients. But it was very hard to get anybody to buy it. Yeah. So, you know, she put it on the map for us and told a couple of stores to buy it, like some of the bigger ones back then that we were in, like Harborside. Or, uh, there wasn't a huge amount of dispensaries open at that point, to be honest. Yeah. I, and so we were the, apothecarium. The few that were open. Yeah. Apothecarium. Yep. Of course, apothecarium. I love apothecariums. Oh, I thank really you. <laughs> well, we it's love you. It's one of my favorite stores. I wish I was in the Bay Area more. I can tell you that's where I would shop. I just love the way it's laid out. And and obviously you must know this, but I was amazed to find out that there's one on the East Coast. Yeah. We, right? There's we're, one in Pennsylvania. Yep, and we are opening up in New Jersey as well. Incredible. I can't, Oh, my God. Northern New Jersey, I hope. It's, um, gosh, where is it? I have to look and see. I want to see. be able to send my, my friends from New York there. In New York, they have a tough time getting good product. Maybe yeah. they will in New Jersey, too, but. Well, it's, it, it's going to be opening soon, and I know that we have, actually, let me look on our website, because I know that we have listed um, the soon-to-be-open places and we're um we're also going to be opening in capitola soon we just opened up in berkeley so just really excited about it that that was exciting for us you know when berkeley came on the map we were extremely happy about that i mean i i'd love to be in your store in uh, nevada i know frankly. right oh it's going to be phillipsburg is where it's opening okay yeah okay 
Yeah, that's something we really need to work on with some of our partners is to be able to expand into states where we actually have trusted partners. Uh, because, you know, we had patients all across the world, and now with legalization, <laughs> it's definitely different. They, we have patients that travel to California and go to places like Apothecarium and then bring it to wherever they came from. But um, one of the thoughts that I've been working on is to actually, at least on a small scale, be able to produce for a store like Apothecarium in New Jersey and not even worry about the rest of the state so much, just become a provider for stores that we're familiar with so that we can expand back to the patient base that really we know and knows us and and really needs the medication. So Yeah, oh, and we, we need to do a lot more work as far as freeing up um, – how the states can do business. Cause I know like, you know, we're thinking with everything up in the air with Washington legalization on a national level, we don't know where that's going, but I know that people mm -hmm. like Etienne Fontaine from Berkeley's patient group is part of a consortium of people who are trying to create a way that we can do interstate commerce as well, because it, it's just mm -hmm. incredibly important, especially with, all these states that are starting to get both medical and recreational on their ballots. And, and nobody wants to travel with a substance that's illicit in their state. They want to be able to have free access, free, safe access. We need to really work towards that. I agree 100%. They shouldn't have to. You know, it's just become everybody so accustomed with that, with cannabis. <laughs> it's been illegal. So now you go buy it somewhere, it's legal, and you travel with it. It's sort of part of the part of the plant at this point and assumed but it really shouldn't be we i mean safe access is definitely still a problem there's a lot of states that they're very draconian still about it and you know with the state of the world right now it's, it's really hard to know what's going to happen i agree with you but um we all need to get behind the people who are trying to get access first and foremost safe access affordable access for all patients anywhere. The fact, this uh, you, you want to know what drives me, that's, that's really what drives me, is the fact that there are so many patients out of time that just, they not only do they not know what to do, but even if they did, they don't have safe access. And from somebody who would have died, literally, without cannabinoids, I take it very seriously. And so I feel like it's almost my job to make sure that anybody I can create this access for, I should. Um, well, it's a very sad state of affairs. Yeah, you've you've done a lot to help. I know um, we finally opened up our compassion program again since Governor Newsom signed off in October, last October, to allow the compassion programs. And we're doing our, we're launching our first compassion donations to low-income, chronically and critically ill patients in the Bay Area in October. And you guys were the one of the first to offer to donate. And, you know, that's... Well... I, I'm always grateful, but I'm also never surprised when it comes from you because you've just always been so generous, not only helping people out, you know, with product, and especially, like, back in the 215 days, but also just the rich education because, you know, I... Our, our our staff always looks to get you know when you 
when Chris comes to drop off educational materials, it's like everybody's looking for it because they know that you're going to be a great source because we've, our culture is so much about education. Well, we've just uh, given him a little bit more leash and a lot more uh, uh, freedom. And um, he's really going to start bolstering our educational program a lot more. And our educational materials are going to get a lot broader. That's uh, so cool. It's incredibly important to me. When this all started, I did, we didn't charge anything. And by the way, I, what I didn't say is, you know, Ringo and I, we gave everybody all that oil. And what ended up happening was, you know, we went from growing on the black market to support ourselves to growing CBD medicine and giving it away. And both of us went broke. And Ringo died completely broke and having a $100,000 cancer treatment bill. You know, people don't realize that. They probably think he's some big shot grower, and he was. But he spent all that money donating and creating the plants and the oil, like myself, to give away to patients. We never felt like we should charge for it. It's a plant. And I know we're crazy like that, you know. But still, we really felt like we needed to give it to people. How can you charge somebody that's critically ill, had to save up to travel across the country, can't even afford the pharmaceutical meds that they're on, never mind their, their rent. And we're going to charge them a few thousand dollars value for the oil that we made? No way. Yeah. And so we gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. And then when we first started with the tincture thing, we gave away 50 to 70% minimum. And it was hurting us, you know, because we didn't feel like we could charge for it. Uh, we, we knew we could charge for it. We just couldn't bring ourselves to charge for it most of the time so many people came to us and we just kept giving it away giving it away and i still feel that way it's just now with compliance and everything we have to be able to afford to make this stuff people don't realize how expensive it is people just think that cannabis is expensive and we're all greedy and everybody the stores everybody's just making millions of dollars and we're, we all have rolexes and uh teslas and it's not that way at all. It's very hard to make money and to be compassionate is very difficult. But I can tell you that um, I was so excited that you guys are doing this program because people say that they're doing programs, but it, it turns out to not be as genuine as this is and as genuine as it needs to be. And so yeah. I was very excited and I want to be extremely involved in the compassion program that you guys are running this is just the beginning, our initial donation. Um, we're strategizing. We definitely want to get behind it and help more and be able to deploy as much medicine for cheap, free, to give people access as possible. So you can count on us for sure. That's, that's why I'm doing this. So um, well, you know, I... to have a vehicle that, that helps that, you can count us in. 150%. I so appreciate that. That's, you know, it, it is one of the hardest conversations to have with people because it's, um, I remember when, you know, legalization passed and people just started showing up, you know, at our door and we're like, well, you know, it hasn't been enacted yet. It's been passed. But I, I, one of the, one of the good things about all this confusion around cannabis is it's a great opportunity to educate people on civics on how to get politically involved and to let the people know that we've 
the people that we vote into office know that not only are we productive citizens that pay taxes, but we use cannabis and we care about how expensive it is to do business and the taxation. I really wish that more of our politicians understood that the green rush is over. You know, we, we really the green like, rush. It's dead. It only, it only existed because it was, it wasn't, uh, regulated. Right. That was the green rush. That's why people were getting rich is they were duping people. They had no verification by way of testing. They had no compliance. It was a big rue. The whole medical industry was practically one big rue that I felt like people were riding the legitimate medical company's coattails just to do this. And, and, and look at what happened when Prop 64 uh, became active. Look at how many medical licenses there are for cultivation. Look at how many medical licenses there are, period. Um, you know, I was, I'm literally one of a handful of medical cultivation licenses in the whole state. Everybody went adult use. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same thing with dispensaries for the most part and uh, manufacturers. As soon as it became adult use, everybody stepped aside, and we were some of the only people standing in the medical aisle anymore. Yeah. And the only reason we have an adult use license on our manufacturing is so that I can actually provide these tinctures to an old adult use store that didn't get the medical use. Right. You know? And and that's so. the thing that, you know, I don't think they understand. Like, I, I was um I was one of the co-chairs of the Legalization Task Force for San Francisco, and we were, we were convening prior to 64 being passed. And that was one of the things that we required was that there wasn't going to be, for the first, I believe it was two years, a dispensary couldn't exist without a medical license as well because we wanted to make sure that it, it stayed. And when people, you know, saw... Wow. So, yeah, I mean, we really were pushing. I didn't know that. Yeah. That awesome. Well, you know, San Francisco, it's like, you know, the Castro, the AIDS epidemic. It's like we were one of the epicenters. And so... You know, wait a minute. San Francisco was the foundation yep. of medical, period. <laughs> yeah, it totally was. And Dennis Perone, you know, I, I used to bring donations for for him and Brownie Mary to make edibles, and that's where it began. The whole country, I don't care what Colorado wants to believe, <laughs> the country has a lot to owe to San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and to some very stubborn, scrappy people who believed strongly in in the power of what they were doing we've we've got it we owe mm -hmm. them so much and now when we're looking at adult use you know i like i prefer that than recreational but it's you know i try to explain to people that it's it's still not a bunch of people showing up wanting to get high people are curious about using it to create relief we get so many people that more people come in now because they don't have to have that conversation with somebody to get a recommendation and the stigma has uh -huh. been lifted because it's more accessible so we still i would say that about 75 percent of the people that i would see were still coming in for some sort of management of physical or mental issues and not you know not just to get baked. Right, and, and the fact that they do get high from it or get some euphoria off of it is, a, is an added benefit that they never even thought about, and right. they start to enjoy it. 
what's amazing to me is that in the medical in the re, in the real world, so to speak, it's euphoria is a bad word. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're sick, and I've had doctors tell me this. What is wrong with euphoria? You you need a little euphoria when you're sick. That's what makes that's what gets you through. Yep. That's what helps you. I, I don't understand why that's a bad thing. It's so strange to me. I think it has a lot to do with the puritanical roots of our society in the United States. And the one thing I have to, to say, too, is like, especially with everything that's going on with COVID and people feeling isolated and blue, I've been, I've been doing a class on um, sleep, anxiety, and depression, kind of life in the time of COVID classes and so many people come but my my mother-in-law who is in her 80s she hadn't really she like puffed on she tried a joint once many many years ago other than that she hadn't used cannabis at all and you know she's she has she's she has leukemia but it's it's not where she's sick she she just has like a low I don't know how to explain it it's like a it exists in her body and they just watch her white blood cell count. And occasionally she's had to have mm -hmm. treatment for it, but because of that, she mm -hmm. has a compromised immune system. So she's not able to, you know, leave, she has to be really careful when she leaves the house and she's a really social person. So, you know, she doesn't have, she's not able to hang out with her peers and do things at the senior center or go for lunch with her friends. Like she likes to, and for, for all of us, it's been really hard mentally, you know, emotionally to be stuck at home. But the one thing sh she mentioned was that I, I'd gotten her um, a little pen to use. And she said that, you know, she, she actually took a puff of it during the day when she was feeling really like the cabin fever was really getting to her and making her feel really down. And, you know, especially as we get older, that really impacts your health. Um, but she said uh -huh. just taking like one little puff. It didn't, it, she's like, it didn't even really get me high. It just gave me this lift in mood and made me feel like I can get through this day. It's going to be okay. You know, it's, perfect. it's a perfect tool for something like that. And that's, like you said, there's nothing wrong with euphoric effects. It's actually a really good thing to feel good. But you also have the opportunity to use it without having overwhelming euphoric effects too if you choose and and those are conversations that i think we need to have more of and you know i always use the the phrase conversation is normalization because every time somebody comes in to see me and uh you know I'm, i don't work behind the bar anymore but i have my private practice where i work with clients it's usually because they've had a conversation with a family member or a friend or and sometimes now more so than before a physician saying it wouldn't hurt to try it you know or somebody's you it's know true. somebody's had a good experience and it's like yeah now let's figure out what works well for you and it's a great way to get in touch with our bodies and explore the interactions of, of different substances with our bodies because we lose touch with that. It's like our, our world, we're just constant, we're an autopilot so much. And it's like, we, I can't tell you how many times people come to see me with a bunch of products and they're like, I don't know. All I know is that it just didn't work. And it's because we need to have greater conversations about the mindfulness of, of what we put in our bodies. And cannabis is a great, a great way to start if, if you're open to using it. You know, I just realized we're over an hour and I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really love it if you would come back again. 
anytime you want, um, I'd, I'd be happy to. So if you want to do it again, if you want to make it a semi-regular thing, whatever you'd like, I'd be happy to. I would love uh, that. You know, Maybe next time we can we can get into some some deep conversations about some of the precursors. Like we can do some talking about THCA and CBDA, especially CBDA, because I don't think a lot of people know a lot about it. And you know, I mean, I talk about some of the antioxidant effects of it, but there's there's so much more to it. And I would I would love to discuss it with you because I'm sure you've seen a lot of very interesting things. And, and, and there's a lot of things that, that a lot of people, including myself, aren't familiar with that are, that, that's being discovered in places that have very limited amounts of, there's only one of this test equipment that can test for this stuff. There's a lo- all kinds of compounds that we are now discovering in cannabis that are actually creating some of these reactions that we're looking for. And so now, like nobody's ever heard of the cannabinoid 3119. You know, right. But um, or TH, uh, THCP and things like that. Um, and a lot of these compounds, the Israelis and other people have discovered are absolutely mandatory to get some of these anti-tumor effects or anti-anxiety effects. And people accidentally stumbled across them. And that's why they work, but they don't realize why. So we're only now starting to discover that and you know, then there's everybody wants this high THC flower, <clears throat> but a lot of times that 30% flower doesn't get you as stoned as you would think. Right. And there's reasons for that. You know, the THCP thing is really going to blow people's minds because they wonder why, oh, I bought this blueberry muffins and it was only 13%, but it got me really high. Well, there's other compounds in there that we're not testing for. Yes, it's the entourage effect that, that could potentially be responsible for a lot of it, but mark my words, when we start testing for some of these cannabinoids, like THCP, where it's 300 times more potent than THC, all it's going to take is a fractional amount of that to be in that 13% cannabis, and that's why you got so high from it. We really need to break that stigma we really need buyers and consumers to stop purchasing based on THC content. Um, there's way more to it. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to participate in conversations that expand the knowledge of that. So Let's buyers do it. can be a lot more savvy when they go into your stores. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. It's, I always, I've, I've had to say to people so many times that, you know, THC is, is only one part of the equation and, one of the things I love about being an educator in the cannabis space, when people say to me, oh, or introduce me as, this is my friend Sarah, and she's an expert in cannabis. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> because, uh, you know, there are people who know way more than I do, even though I know quite a bit. But also, we learn every day. And, and there are, and with the combinations of people's, you know, personal body chemistries and the neurodiversity that also plays a huge part. So even when, you know, when the time comes, if, if it ever does, where we have it down with the chemical makeup of cannabis and all the variants, we're still going to be looking at how people react to it due to the levels of hormones in their body and their age and what's going on with them mentally. And, you know, I, it just it keeps me going because I get bored when I know when I understand something really well I just it it 
just challenges me and and I love like when somebody comes up to me and tells me that something didn't you know turn out the way they read in a book it should and this is how they reacted I always lean in and I'm like that's fascinating tell me more about it what exactly happened what did you do you know but well and that's you know that's sort of my final thought here is that it really makes you wonder how the pharmaceutical slash western medicine world can say if you're this age and this weight take this much of this medicine yeah right there's so much more to it than that. We know from cannabis, because cannabis has a number of effects that are can be fairly extreme, potentially uncomfortable, but we know that it's not one size fits all. No, it's So true. how can pharmaceuticals be one size fits all? They're not. It's not. It's not. It's just they act like it is. They prescribe like it is. Never mind the fact that men and women should be drastically prescribed differently right. between the two sexes. And that they're doing um, research with male rats instead of both male and female. So exactly. we're, we're getting some skewed results with that, along with the, all the other Absolutely. skewing that comes with that. Well, you know, I, 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 uh, a couple times a year, I do a lecture for the UC, um, UCSF uh, pharmacology students in palliative care. And one of the things that they always ask me is they ask for exact ratio, ratios and dosages for people. And... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I thought that would make you laugh. <laughs> but I just look at him and I'm like, you know, that's not how it works. <laughs> and they're like, so they know. I mean, I said, you know, because I was like, you you know that everybody reacts differently and that you generalize when you do your prescribing of medicine. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, it's true. So, I mean, like they know to a certain extent, but they don't want to know because everybody wants everything to be cut and dried, black and white. And nothing, nothing is that. Mm-hmm. No, and with cannabis, you know, because it's semi-primitive compared to these pharmaceuticals that are very exacting, you know, we, we see all these variances and all these variable uh, results. And so we automatically, you know, drift in certain directions, whereas when you prescribe something, that's it. You take the pill, there is there is no other version of that typically, sometimes, but typically. Yeah. And... Um, it's just, it is interesting, and and I think that we need to educate the doctors, and even though they know this, they don't practice this, they don't, you know, they don't want to apply it to their practice. I think that it would benefit everybody if they did. It, it <laughs> you know, would. Treat, Critical thought you know. has so much, there, there's so much in that, and, and I mean, and especially when we're talking about diagnosing illnesses, like... You know, we we just there was just a, a famous actor. I can't remember his name right now. I'm having a little chemo brain moment. But he was in um, Black Panther, and he just passed away. And he was a young young guy with colon cancer. And and that's one of the things. More and more people are dying of cancers um, that go undetected until it's too late because protocols dictate that those are cancers that happen to older people. Like I was 37 when I was diagnosed with colon cancer. And the first time I went to a doctor, he patted me on the head and said, you have IBS, go home. Well, it was stage three. And the day I went in for my resectioning, my tumor actually blocked my colon. And I would have been dead if I had listened to him. And I met so many people that were younger that were like, 
not even as lucky as me. It's like they didn't get the right answer until they were stage four. And these are things that can be avoided if we actually take time to look at people and use critical thought and really have conversations. Agreed. You know, protocols are a framework. They aren't the end-all, be-all. It's, it's exactly the same in a lot of diseases. Uh, it's the same thing for, for what I have, uh, autoimmune and IBD specifically. Um, that's why it took me eight years and four different doctors in four different regions of the country to diagnose me is because of the way the doctors get taught, the way the AMA protocol as dictated. Um, they, you know, IBS, I would have been lucky if they told me IBS at first. Most people get misdiagnosed with hemorrhoids yeah. when they have autoimmune IBD. And even though the doctor will say, I don't really see them, but, you know, if they get any worse, we'll have to ban them. It's like, okay. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse until they're finally ready to send you to a GI doctor, do some imagery, and then they find out. But I've talked to, and you're probably the same way with, with your issue, you've probably talked to a bunch of people that had the same thing. And we're misdiagnosed in the same exact way. Yep. So that's a failure at the school level and the protocols at the AMA and the FDA and all the regulatory bodies and the boards and so on have dictated over the years. And so the doctors are indoctrinated into this misdiagnosis uh, methodology that it just doesn't seem to ever change or end. Yeah. And, um, I mean, here we are in 2020 misdiagnosing in the same way that they were in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And and the onus is on, on the individual to find somebody who will listen to them. Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of people get sick. They just throw their hands up and tell doctors to help them rather than taking their health care into their own hands. And I, I understand it's a very difficult task. But if you don't, you know, the end results are usually not great. No, they're not. Oh, Harry, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, if our, I know, actually not if, when our listeners want to reach out and follow you on social media, uh, where are you located and, and how can they find you? Well, we do have a website, which is rosettewellness.com. Uh, we're on Facebook under Rosette Wellness, but our primary social media feed right now is uh, Rosette Wellness on Instagram, and then Rosette Labworks on Instagram. Rosette Labworks is my manufacturing company, and Rosette Wellness is the is the uh, medical product brand. Awesome. So Rosette Wellness on Instagram is probably the most active that people keep up they can message me through that uh they can always email me through the website or they can email me through info at rosettwellness.com um i'm the one that reviews that as it comes in to make sure that no patients slip through my fingers uh other people view it too but i view it so you can count on me being at the other end of it and i'd be happy to help anybody who is interested in helping themselves with cannabinoid therapy. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do, all that you've contributed 
to our work because I know, you know, a lot of people, including myself, have really benefited from all the research that you've done. Um, for our viewers out there, um, if you want to follow Planted, uh, we have Instagram, Planted with Sarah. Um, it's also our website is www.plantedwithsarah.com. Thank you, Harry, for joining us today. We're definitely going to do another episode, and let's do one on cannabinoids that people haven't heard of. Because <laughs> I think we'll get a lot of people listening in on that. And, well, I, I just look forward to that conversation because that, that's something that I would, yeah. if I wasn't talking to you about it, I'd want to listen in, that's for sure. So. Well, thank you so much for doing what you do. It's really important, and I wish, you know, every... Uh, cannabis had somebody as dedicated as you to actually provide the services and educate people on proper use of cannabinoids and how to help themselves with cannabis. So thank you for doing things that you do. And of course, if there's any way that I could ever contribute, you can always reach out to me. Oh, you know I will. <laughs> and for everybody out there, thanks for listening today. Um, just a reminder, Planted is going to be starting to go to twice a month. So we're going to have a lot of really interesting conversations. So stay tuned, tune in with us, and it's a crazy world out there. Be kind to one another. Take care.